You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158 by Rudolf Steiner. It's a, uh, seven lectures with assorted addresses, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World. Kalevala, Olaf Astasen, The Russian People, The World as the Result of Balancing Influences. Translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is the first lecture, public lecture, given in Helsinki on the 9th of April, 1912. The Essential Nature of National Epics, with particular reference to the Kalevala. I must first apologize for the fact that I am unable to give the lecture which I am about to present to you in one of the languages that are in habitual use in this country. That I am able to speak to you now rises from a wish on the part of the friends of our Theosophical Society, who invited me here to give a series of lectures over the coming fortnight for they had the idea that it might be possible to insert the two public lectures that have been announced into the program. Readers aside, this is during the time of the uh, lecture cycle, Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature, given in Helsinki around this time. And readers aside. A further apology that I have to make is that because of my ignorance of the language, my pronunciation of several of the names and other words derived from the national epic of the Finns, may not be altogether correct. Next Friday's lecture will lead us more directly into spiritual science itself. This evening's lecture will be mainly concerned with a closely related area which can be illuminated by spiritual science. I shall be speaking of a subject which is one of the most interesting aspects of historical research and of the thoughts that are stimulated by it. National epics. We need only to consider some of the more well-known national epics, such as those of Homer, which have become the national epics of the Greeks, the Nibelungen legend of Central Europe, and finally the Kalevala, to realize at once that these national epics lead us more deeply into the inner life and aspirations of human beings than any amount of historical research. For through them, ancient times of great significance become alive within us as a present experience, touching us no less than the lives and destinies of those living around us now. From a historical point of view, the times of the ancient Greeks of whom the Homeric epics speak belong to the twilight realm of uncertainty. And when we immerse ourselves in the Iliad or the Odyssey, we gain a real insight into the souls of people who have become completely oblivious to ordinary historical observation. It is not surprising that those who study these national epics from the point of view of academic literature are perplexed by them. We need only to call to mind a particular aspect of the ancient Greek epics to which a brilliant student of the Iliad has repeatedly referred in a very beautiful book about Homer's Iliad, which appeared a few years ago. I am speaking of Hermann Grimm, the nephew of the great researcher into German language, legends and myths, Jakob Grimm. 
When Hermann Grimm allowed the characters and events of the Iliad to exert their influence upon him, he felt himself ever and again moved to say, O oh, this fellow Homer! We do not need today to enter into the question of who Homer actually was. When he is describing something that has to do with a craft or an art, appears to be an expert in that specialized field of activity. If he is describing a battle, he seems to have full knowledge of the strategic and military principles involved in conducting a war. Hermann Grimm rightly points out that Napoleon, who was a strict judge of such things, was an admirer of Homer's matter-of-fact descriptions of battles. And Napoleon was someone who was doubtless entitled to judge whether or not military exploits are realistically and vividly portrayed by Homer. We know from a generally human standpoint to what extent Homer was able to depict the characters in his narrative as though they stood directly before our physical eyes. How is interest in such a national epic maintained over the years? Anyone who studies these things in an unprejudiced way will not receive the impression that the interest in the Iliad and the Odyssey that has been maintained until our own time has been artificially contrived by some kind of inbred academic institutionalism. This interest speaks for itself. It has a universally human quality. However, these national epics present us with a task, and as soon as we seek to study them, we come to see that it is a quite definite and moreover interesting one. They want to be studied quite precisely in all their details. We feel at once that there is something about such national epics that is incomprehensible to us if we try to read them as we would a modern work of art, a modern novel, for instance. From the first lines of the Iliad, we can feel that Homer is speaking with absolute precision. What is he describing to us? He tells us right at the beginning. From other accounts not contained in the Iliad, we know a lot about events that led up to what is described in it. Homer's sole wish is to make us aware of what he expresses so concisely in the first line, the anger of Achilles. And if we now peruse the entire Iliad and consider it with an open mind, we have to admit that there is nothing in it that cannot be construed as following from the anger of Achilles. There is also something else that becomes apparent right at the beginning of the Iliad. Homer does not simply begin with facts, nor does he begin with some kind of personal opinion. Rather does he begin with something that in the modern age might be regarded as a meaningless cliché, quote, Sing to me, O muse, of the anger of Achilles, close quote. But the more deeply we explore this epic tale, the clearer it becomes to us that we cannot understand its meaning, essential quality and significance, if we do not take its initial words seriously. We then need to ask ourselves, what do they really mean? Just consider the nature of the description, the way that the events are brought to our awareness. These words, quote, O oh, sing to me, muse, of the anger of Achilles, close quote, have posed a question for many people, not only academic, literary specialists, 
but also those of a truly artistic inclination, such as Hermann Grimm. This has been a question that went right to their hearts. How do the deeds of divine spiritual beings, and in Homer's poetic writings, these are the deeds, intentions, and passions of the Olympic gods, interact in the Iliad, and equally in the Song of the Nibelungen, or in the Kalevala, with the deeds, intentions, and passions of human beings who, like Achilles, are in a certain sense remote from the ordinary run of humanity, and furthermore with the passions, intentions, and deeds of human beings who, like Odysseus or Agamemnon, are closely related to ordinary humanity. When we become inwardly aware of Achilles, he appears to us as someone who, with respect to his fellow human beings, lives in solitude. As the Iliad proceeds, we very soon come to feel that in Achilles we have a personality who is unable to speak of his innermost concerns with all the other heroes. Homer also shows us that Achilles has to sort out his most intimate concerns with divine spiritual beings who do not belong to the human kingdom, that through the entire course of the Iliad he relates in solitude to the human kingdom, but is closely affiliated to supersensible, super-earthly powers. And the strange thing is that if we summon forth all the feeling and thinking as they have been refined in the development of human culture and direct our attention toward Achilles, he seems to us to be so egotistic, so personal. A being with divine spiritual impulses dwelling in his soul is acting entirely out of personal considerations. For a long time this legendary Trojan War, which was so important for the Greeks, continued to be waged, thus bringing about the particular episodes described in the Iliad, because Achilles was settling personal accounts with Agamemnon and we see constantly that super-earthly powers become involved. We see Zeus, Apollo, and Athena sharing out impulses and, as it were, putting human beings in their place. Before I came to have the task of approaching these matters from the standpoint of spiritual science, I always found it strange how a person of great brilliance, with whom I often had the good fortune to discuss these things on a personal level, namely Hermann Grimm, dealt with this sort of issue. He had a lot to say, not merely in his writings, but frequently and with far more precision in personal conversations. He said that if we take into account only the influence of historical powers and impulses on human evolution, we will not be able to make sense of what is living and working in the great national epics. Hence, for Hermann Grimm, a truly erudite student of the Iliad and of folk epics of every kind, there was something that goes beyond the ordinary faculties of human consciousness, beyond reason, understanding, and sense observation, something that transcends ordinary feeling and becomes a real power, a power that is creative like other historical impulses. Hermann Grimm spoke of a true creative imagination pervading human evolution, speaking of it as one speaks of a being, of a reality, of something that has held sway over human beings and which in the earliest stages of the times that we are able to observe 
when the individual folk groups were coming into being, had more to say to them than their ordinary human soul forces. Hermann Grimm always spoke of this creative imagination in terms of the irradiating light of a world that goes beyond ordinary human soul forces, and he therefore regarded it as having attained a co-creative role in the process of human evolution. But the strange thing is that when we focus upon this battlefield of the Iliad, this evocation of the anger of Achilles, with all the interplay of divine, spiritual, supersensible powers, we will not be satisfied with the kind of study that Hermann Grimm has provided of it. And in his book on the Iliad, we find many references to a sense of resignation, which show us that the ordinary standpoint that an academic literary historian has to adopt today cannot give an adequate account of these phenomena. What does Hermann Grimm have to say about the Iliad or about the Nibelungen legend? His conclusion is that the historical ruling dynasties were preceded by other similar dynasties. This is Hermann Grimm's actual, even literal view. He thinks that Zeus, together with his whole retinue, represents a kind of ruling dynasty, which preceded the ruling dynasty to which Agamemnon belonged. Thus his view of human history is that it has a certain uniformity, and that the gods or heroes portrayed in the Iliad or the Nibelungen legend are human beings from a bygone age, whom people of a later time dared to portray only by clothing their deeds and character in the garb of superhuman myths. There is much that cannot be accounted for if one begins with such a supposition, especially the particular way in which the gods intervene in Homer's epic story. I beg you to consider how Thetis, the mother of Achilles, Athena, and other gods intervene in the events of Troy. They intervene by taking on the form of mortal human beings, inspiring them and inciting them to accomplish their deeds. Hence they do not appear in their own right, but instead they pervade living human beings. Living human beings feature not merely as their representatives, but as sheaths pervaded by invisible powers, which are unable to appear on the battlefield in their own form, or as they really are. It would certainly be a strange thing to suggest that ordinary people from long ago should have been portrayed as needing to adopt representatives from the race of mortals as their sheaths. This is only one of the many indications that can prove to us all that we cannot make sense of the ancient national epics in this way. It is no easier if we consider the characters in the Song of the Nibelungen, for example, Siegfried from Xanten in the Lower Rhine, who went to the court of Burgundy and Worms to court Krimhilda, the sister of Gunther, and then courts Gunhilda for Gunther with his special powers. How strangely are figures such as Brunhilde from Island and also Siegfried described to us. Siegfried is described as someone who has overcome the so-called Nibelungen race and has acquired or conquered the treasure of the Nibelungen. Through what he has acquired as a result of his victory over the Nibelungen, he receives quite special powers 
which come to expression in the epic where it is said that he can make himself invisible and is in a certain sense invulnerable. Furthermore, he has powers that an ordinary person like Gunther does not possess, for he cannot win Brunhilde, who cannot be conquered by an ordinary mortal. Siegfried conquers Brunhilde through the special powers that he has as the possessor of the treasure of the Nibelungen. And through his capacity to conceal the powers that he has developed, he is able to lead Brunhilde to Gunther, his brother-in-law. Then we find that Kriemhilde and Brunhilde, whom we experience at the same time at the Burgundian court, are two very different characters, who manifest influences that cannot be explained in terms of powers residing in the human soul. Because of these influences, they come in conflict, and this leads to Brunhilde's being able to induce the faithful servant Hagen to kill Siegfried. This is indicative of a feature that is so characteristic of Central European legends. Siegfried has higher superhuman powers. He has these superhuman powers because he possesses the treasure of the Nibelungen. Ultimately, they do not make him into a figure who is necessarily victorious, but into one who stands tragically before us. The powers that Siegfried has through the treasure of the Nibelungen at the same time represent the undoing of human beings. Everything becomes even stranger if we also consider the related Nordic legend of Sigurd, the dragon slayer, though it is illuminating. Sigurd, who is none other than Siegfried, immediately appears to us as the conqueror of the dragon and has therefore acquired the Nibelungen treasure from an old race of dwarves, while Brunhilde appears to us as a figure of superhuman nature, as a Valkyrie. Thus we see that in Europe there are two ways of portraying these things. One way is where everything is connected to the divine, supersensible domain, where it becomes apparent to us that Brunhilde belongs directly to the supersensible world, and the other way is where the legend is humanized. Nevertheless, even here we can recognize that the divine world reverberates through everywhere. Now, let us turn our attention from these legends, from these national epics, to a realm of which I am only qualified to speak as someone who is able to view these phenomena from outside, that is, as someone who can recognize them without speaking the relevant language. I ask you to allow for the fact that as a Western European studying the Kalevala, I am only able to speak as someone who is aware of the spiritual content and its great mighty figures, and that the more subtle details that the epic doubtless contains, which only emerge if one has really mastered the language in which it was written, will inevitably elude me. But even a study of this nature reveals a threefold quality in the three, well, one is really in a quandary trying to find a name for them. One cannot call them gods or heroes. So we shall simply say the three beings, Vainemoinen, Ilmarinen, and Lemminkainen. These figures speak a strange language if we compare their characters with one another, a language from which we can clearly recognize that what is being said to us goes far beyond what can be achieved with ordinary human soul forces. If we consider them purely outwardly, 
these three figures grow into monstrous proportions. But what is so strange is that even though they grow to so vast a degree, every single characteristic appears graphically before us, so that we never have the feeling that these immense proportions have something grotesque or paradoxical about them, but have the sense that what needs to be said must necessarily manifest itself on a superhuman scale and with superhuman significance. And then the content itself is so full of riddles. There is something about it that spurs us on to think about the very essence of man's being, but nevertheless reaches beyond what our ordinary soul forces are able to grasp. Ilmarinen was often called the blacksmith, and who was first and foremost an artist, at Vainamonen's instigation, forgoes the Sampo for a foreign land, a region where those people who may be called the older brothers of humanity live, people who are at any rate more primitive than the Finns. And we see this remarkable circumstance that a lot takes place far from the scene where the main events are enacted, and that as time passes, Vainamonen and Ilmarinen are after a certain period obliged to retrieve the Sampo, which was through them placed in a foreign land. Anyone who allows this strange language of the spirit that evokes this forging of the Sampo, its state of separation and recovery, to work upon him, and as I have said, I ask you to bear in mind that I am speaking as a foreigner, and can therefore only speak of the impression that I receive, immediately has a sense that the most essential and most significant aspect of this epic poem is the forging, state of separation, and regaining of the Sampo. I find the conclusion of the Kalevala particularly moving. I have heard that there are those who believe that this conclusion is perhaps a later edition. For my feeling, this ending involving Mariata and her son, where one sees the interweaving of, it, of a very distinctive form of Christianity, and I say this quite explicitly, belongs very much to the whole. Because of this conclusion, the Kalevala acquires a quite particular nuance, a quality that enables us fully to penetrate what it is all about. I would even say that for my feeling, the conclusion of the Kalevala has no parallel as a delicate and miraculously interpersonal portrayal of Christianity. The Christian principle is freed from all geographical limitations. Mariata's approach to Herod, whom we encounter in the Kalevala as Rotus, is formulated in so impersonal a way that it is barely reminiscent of the places and personalities in Palestine. Indeed, we are, I would say, not reminded even to the slightest degree of the historical Christ Jesus. At the end of the Kalevala, we find a delicate reference to the immersion of the noblest cultural pearl of humanity into Finnish culture as an intimate concern of the human heart. With this is linked the tragic episode that can affect us so deeply, namely that at the moment when Christianity makes its mark, when Mariata's son is baptized, Vainamoinen takes leave of his people in order to go to an unspecified destination, bequeathing to them only the substance and the power of what he has through his art as a singer 
been able to tell them about the events in far-off times that form part of their history. I find this withdrawal of Vainamoinen, when the son of Maryatta appears, so significant because we can discern in it the living interplay of what was living in the depths of the Finnish people and the Finnish folk soul, and had done so since ancient times, in the moment when Christianity found entry into Finland. Everything that lived in people's souls through the way that this ancient wisdom related to Christianity can be felt with a wonderful intimacy. I am saying this as something of whose objectivity I am thoroughly conscious. I am not saying it to please or flatter anyone. In this national epic, we Western Europeans have one of the most wonderful examples of how the members of a folk stand bodily before us with their entire soul in the immediate present, with the result that the acquaintance that we have in Western Europe with the Finnish soul through the Kalevala can enable us to become thoroughly familiar with it. Why have I said all this to you? My object has been to characterize how something speaks in national epics that cannot be explained by the ordinary powers of the human soul even if one regards the imagination as a real power of cognition. And even though to many people what is being said sounds purely hypothetical, I may now be allowed to indicate what spiritual science has to say about the nature of these national epics. I am, of course, aware that what I have to say concerns matters with which very few people today are able to agree. Many will regard what I am saying as some sort of dreamy fantasy. Others, however, will accept it alongside a variety of hypotheses that are proposed regarding the evolution of mankind. Nevertheless, for someone who enters into spiritual science in the way that I intend to explore it in my next lecture, what I am saying is no mere hypothesis, but the result of real research which can be placed alongside the results of other scientific research. The things that I need to speak about sound strange, because present-day science, which believes that it stands firmly on the ground of real facts, of what is true and uniquely attainable, limits itself to what our outward senses perceive, to what an intellect that is bound to the senses and the brain is able to discover. Hence it is generally considered unscientific today if one speaks about a method of research that makes use of other soul forces which have the capacity of beholding the supersensible world and the interweaving of this world in the sense-perceptible domain. The research method of spiritual science leads one not merely to the abstract fantasy that leads Hermann Grimm to say what he does about national epics, but rather to something that goes far beyond fantasy and portrays a completely different state of soul or consciousness than is possible for man to have in the present period of his evolution. Hence we are led back by spiritual science to a former time in human evolution in a completely different way than occurs in ordinary science. Ordinary science is accustomed today to look back at the evolution of humanity in such a way that what we now call human beings have gradually developed from lower animal-like creatures. Spiritual science does seek to combat this modern research 
but fully acknowledges the great and mighty achievements of this 19th century science. It recognizes the significance of the idea that animal forms have undergone a transformation from the least perfect to a perfected form, and that the outward human form has an affinity to the most perfect animal form. But spiritual science cannot remain content with a view of human evolution and of the evolution of organisms in general, such that what has taken place in the course of earthly evolution in the organic world until the appearance of man could be encompassed within a survey of a purely outward sense-perceptible nature. For spiritual science, man today has a close affinity to the animal world. In the world that surrounds us, we behold the diversity of animal forms, and we see, spread out over the earth, a human race which has a certain degree of uniformity. In spiritual science, we also have an unprejudiced view of how, as regards outward forms, everything is indicative of man's relationship to other organisms. But if we trace the evolution of mankind backward, we cannot go back to some dim, distant past when the stream of humanity was inserted directly into animal development. What we actually find, when we reach back from the present into the past, is that we are never directly able to derive the present human form from any animal form that we know from the present. If we reach back into human evolution, we initially find in ever more primitive forms the same soul forces, the powers of understanding, feeling, and will that we also have in our present time. We then arrive at far-off ancient times of which old documents can tell us very little. Even when we go back as far as the Egyptians or the peoples of the Near East, we find ourselves amidst an ancient humanity, which in a somewhat primitive but also larger-than-life form had the same powers of feeling, thinking, and will that have, to be sure, only attained their present form in recent times, but which we are able to regard as the most important impulses of humanity and of human history, insofar as we are able to take man's present soul configuration into account in our backward survey of human history. Nowhere do we find it possible to establish a relationship even on the part of the earliest human races with present-day animal forms. What spiritual science is obliged to assert in this way is acknowledged by the more thoughtful scientists today. But as we reach back into the past and observe how the human soul has changed, if we compare how people think today, whether scientifically or otherwise, how they use their intelligence and powers of feeling, with how people thought in the past, which we can establish with a certain precision, we find that this faculty first appeared amongst mankind at a particular time, namely in the 6th or 7th century before Christ. The entire configuration of present-day feeling and thinking cannot be traced further back than those times when the first Greek philosophers were said to have lived. If we go further back and consider what we find in an unprejudiced way, without referring to spiritual science,
we discover that not only is there no trace of modern scientific thinking, but the human soul is constituted in an entirely different way, much less personal, but also with attributes of a far more instinctive nature. It would not be true to say that the people of that time acted out of the same instincts as animals do today, but the guidance through reason and intellectual capacities that is characteristic of modern times did not then exist. Instead, people had a certain immediate instinctive certainty. They acted out of direct elemental impulses, which they did not control through a brain-bound intellect. What we find is that the soul forces, which have in our time been carefully separated into intellectual powers on the one hand, and imaginative faculties that we make every effort to distinguish from the intellectual powers that gave rise to science, on the other, still exist as a coherent whole. Imagination, intellect, and reasoning power were all mixed up with one another in those ancient times. The further we go back, the more we find that the quality that lived then in people's souls as an inseparable combination of imaginative and intellectual faculties was one that we would no longer associate with the soul faculty that we call imagination today. When we now speak of the imagination, we are well aware that we are speaking of a soul faculty which, in the way that it comes to expression, is not recognized as a means of attaining to reality. In this regard, people today are very diligent. They take great care not to mix up what they derive from their imagination with what the logic of reason imparts to them. When we consider the expressions of the human mind in those prehistoric times, before imagination and intellect became separate from one another, we are aware of a primordial, elemental, and instinctive power that resided in people's souls. We can find in it certain characteristics of the modern imaginative faculty, but what the quality of imagination endowed the human soul with at that time had something to do with a reality. Imagination was not mere fantasy. It was, if I may be so bold as to use the appropriate word, a clairvoyant power. It was a particular soul, faculty, or endowment that enabled people to see things and facts which in the modern epoch of evolution, when intellect and reason need to be especially developed, are hidden from them. Those forces that were not mere fantasy but powers of a clairvoyant nature penetrated deeply into hidden forces and forms of existence lying behind the sense-perceptible world. This is the conclusion to which an unprejudiced assessment must lead, that if we reach back into the history of human evolution, we must say, we must indeed take the words evolution and development seriously. That mankind has in our present age, in recent centuries and millennia, arrived at what may be described as its present advanced stage of intellectual development, is the result of an evolutionary process. These soul forces have evolved from others. And whereas our present soul forces are limited to what can be perceived in the outer world of the senses, there was a primordial humanity 
which, while not having the benefit of modern science and intellectual development, had an insight residing in the depths of all individual peoples, into the very foundations of existence, into a supersensible realm that lies behind the sense-perceptible domain. Clairvoyant powers formerly belonged to the human souls associated with all folk groups, and our present intellectual faculties and reasoning powers, together with our modern way of thinking and feeling, have been formed from these clairvoyant powers. The soul forces that we may in a certain sense refer to as clairvoyant powers were such that a person would feel, it is not I who is thinking and feeling in me. Human individuals felt themselves to be dedicated through their entire bodily nature and soul to higher supersensible powers working and living within them. Thus human beings felt themselves to be like vessels through which supersensible powers spoke. If one considers this, one will also understand the significance of human evolution. Human beings would have remained dependent beings, who would have been able to feel themselves merely as vessels, as the sheaths of higher powers and beings, if they had not advanced to the point of using their own powers of reason and understanding. Man has become independent through the use of these powers. But he has also at the same time been cut off for a period of his evolution from the spiritual world, from the supersensible foundations of existence. In the future, all this will change. The further back we go, so much the more deeply do clairvoyant powers enable the human soul to see into the foundations of existence, whence those forces emerged which exerted a creative influence upon man in prehistoric times to behold a time when all earthly conditions were completely different from those of today, when the forms of living beings were far more mobile, much more subject to a certain kind of metamorphosis. We have to go back a long way from what is called the present period of human culture, tracing human evolution alongside the evolution of animals. Indeed, the separation of the animal from the human lies much further in the past than is generally supposed today. Animal forms then became rigid and less mobile, whereas the human form was still thoroughly soft and flexible and could be formed and molded by what was being inwardly experienced within the soul. We have by now reached back to a time in human development to which our modern consciousness has no access. But there was another consciousness available at that time, a consciousness associated with the clairvoyant powers that have been characterized. Such a consciousness, which was able to behold the past and saw human evolution as deriving from the past in complete separation from all animal life, also saw how human forces were in living interplay with the in-streaming influence of the supersensible powers. It saw what still lived as a faint echo in the times when, for example, the epics of Homer arose and what had existed to a much greater degree in even earlier times than this. If we were to go back beyond Homer, we would find that people had a clairvoyant consciousness 
which had a recollection of prehistorical events in human development and was able to relate a memory of what had happened in this early time. By Homer's time, the situation was that although there was an awareness that the old clairvoyant consciousness was waning, people continued to feel its presence. This was a time when they did not speak out of themselves as egotistical beings, but when gods, supersensible spiritual powers, expressed themselves through them. Thus we must take it seriously when Homer does not speak out of himself, but says, quote, Sing to me, O muse, of the anger of Achilles. Close quote. Sing in me, higher being, a being who speaks through me, who takes possession of me when I sing and speak. This first line of the Iliad is a reality. We are not referred to ancient ruling dynasties, similar in nature to our present-day humanity. Rather, does Homer indicate to us that in former times there were other people in whom the supersensible realm was living? Achilles is clearly a figure from the time of the transition from the old clairvoyance to the modern form of perception, which we find in Agamemnon, Nestor, and Odysseus, but is then led on to a higher way of seeing things. We can only understand Achilles if we know that Homer wants to present him as belonging to an ancient humanity, as someone who lived at a time between the period when human beings still directly reached up to the ancient gods and the present age of humanity, which begins approximately with Agamemnon. We are in a similar way linked to a prehistorical period in the central European Nibelungen legend. The whole way that this epic is recounted shows us this. We are dealing there with people of our present time in a certain sense, but they have nevertheless still retained something from the time when the old clairvoyance prevailed. All the qualities possessed by Siegfried, that he can make himself invisible, that he has powers enabling him to overcome Brunhilde, who could not be overcome by an ordinary mortal, and also other things that are said about him, show us that he is someone who has, as though in his inner memory, carried over into present-day humanity the achievements of the ancient soul forces that were linked with clairvoyance and a deep affinity with nature. On which threshold does Siegfried stand? This is indicated to us by Brunhilde's relationship to Kriemhilde, Siegfried's wife. It is not possible here to enter into the significance of these two figures in greater detail. However, we will be able to make sense of all these legends if we view the characters that are portrayed as pictorial representations of inner clairvoyant or recollected clairvoyant circumstances. Thus, in Siegfried's relationship to Kriemhilde, we see his relationship to the soul forces working within himself. His soul is, in a sense, one of transition, in that with the Nibelungen treasure, that is, with the clairvoyant secrets of ancient times, Siegfried is carrying over into the modern age something that, at the same time, makes him unfit for the present. Thus the people of olden times were able to live with this horde of the Nibelungen, that is, with the old clairvoyant powers.
Earthly conditions have changed since then. As a result, Siegfried, who bears in his soul an echo of these olden times, no longer fits into the present and thereby becomes a tragic figure. How can the present relate to what is still a vital force in Siegfried? For him, something of the old clairvoyant powers remains alive. For when he is overcome, Kriemhilde remains behind. The Nibelungen hoard is brought to her and she can use it. We learn that this treasure is subsequently taken from her by Hagen. We can see that Brunhilde, too, in a certain sense, is capable of working with the old clairvoyant powers. In this respect, she is at odds with those people who do fit into that age, Gunther and his brothers, but especially Gunther, for whom Brunhilde has no time whatever. Why is this? We know from the legend that Brunhilde is a kind of Valkyrie figure, an image of something in the human soul with which people in olden times were still able to unite through clairvoyant powers, but which has withdrawn from them, become unconscious, and is accessible to those living in the present age of the intellect only after death. This is why there is a union with the Valkyries at the moment of death, The Valkyrie is the personification of the living soul forces residing within people today to which the old clairvoyant consciousness had access, but which can be experienced by human beings in our time only once they have passed through the gate of death. Only then are they united with this soul force represented by Brunhilde. Because Kriemhilde still knows something of the old clairvoyant times, and the powers that the soul receives through the ancient clairvoyance, she becomes a figure whose anger is described in a similar way to the anger of Achilles in the Iliad. This is clearly indicated to us in that those people who were still endowed with clairvoyant powers in ancient times did not accept the guidance of their intellectual faculties, but acted directly out of their most intense elemental impulses. That is the source of the strikingly egotistical personal element that is apparent in both Kriemhilde and Achilles. This aspect of the study of national epics becomes especially interesting if we add the Kalevala to those already mentioned. Although because of the shortage of time today it is possible to give only some indications of this, we shall be able to show that the only reason that spiritual science is able in our present time to shed light on the ancient clairvoyant conditions of mankind is that it is again possible today, albeit in a more elevated way, imbued with an intellectual rather than a dreamlike consciousness, to call forth clairvoyant states of consciousness through spiritual schooling. People in our time are gradually preparing for a time when from the depths of the human soul hidden forces, guided now by reason instead of being bereft of its control, will blossom forth and lead them again into the supersensible domain. In this way, we will again come to know the realms whence the ancient national epics speak to us out of the dim consciousness of olden times. Hence we can say that there is a recognition that it is possible to experience a revelation of the world not merely through the outward senses,
but through a supersensible essence that underlies the physical human body. There are methods, which are to be discussed in the next lecture, whereby a human individual is able to make the spiritual, supersensible, inner aspect of his being, whose existence is so often denied today, independent of the sense-perceptible outward aspect of his body, so that he does not live in a state of unconsciousness as in sleep, when he becomes independent of his body, but perceives the spiritual world around him. In this way, modern clairvoyance shows him that it is possible to live as a cognitive being in a higher supersensible body for which the ordinary sense-perceptible body serves as a vessel. In spiritual science, this higher body is called the etheric or ether body. This ether body resides in our body of senses. If we inwardly separate it from the physical sense-perceptible body, we enter a state of consciousness through which we become aware of supersensible facts and of two in particular. Firstly, we begin to realize, at the initial stage of this clairvoyant state, that we are no longer seeing by means of our physical body. We are no longer hearing by means of it. And moreover, we are no longer thinking by means of the brain that is bound to the physical body. In this situation, we initially know nothing about the outer world. I am speaking of things that will be properly explained only in the next lecture. But for this very reason, the first stage of clairvoyance leads us all the more to a perception of our own ether body. We see a supersensible bodily aspect of human nature that underlies it. And the only way of describing this is that it is something that works and creates like a kind of inner architect or master builder that permeates our physical body with life. And then we become aware of the following. We come to realize that what we perceive within ourselves here, what we perceive as the truly living aspect of our ether body, is confined and modified by our physical body, that it is clothed in accordance with the physical aspect. To the extent that the ether body disrobes eyes and ears and also the physical brain, we belong in a sense to the earthly element. In this way we come to see that our etheric body becomes a quite particular, individual, egotistical human being who is incorporated into the sheath of the physical body concerned. On the other hand, however, we perceive how our etheric body leads us again into those regions where we stand impersonally, face to face, with a higher supersensible dimension, something that is not us but which is fully present within us and works through us as a spiritual supersensible power. Our spiritual scientific observation then perceives our inner life of soul as divided into three parts, which are, as it were, enclosed within and fully occupy three outward bodily sheaths. We conduct our soul life in such a way that we experience within it what our eyes see, what our ears hear, what our senses are able to apprehend and what our mind can grasp. We live with our soul in our physical body. Inasmuch as our soul lives in the physical body, our term for it in spiritual science is the consciousness soul 
because only through becoming fully immersed in the physical body in the course of human evolution has it become possible for man to advance to ego consciousness. Then the modern seer also comes to know the life of the soul and what we have called the ether body. The soul indwells the ether body in such a way that its forces are its own, but we cannot say that they are our own personal forces. They are universally human forces, through which we are much closer to all the hidden mysteries of nature. Insofar as the soul perceives these forces in an outward sheath, and specifically in the ether body, we speak of the intellectual or mind soul as a second soul member. So just as we find the consciousness soul in the sheath of the physical body, we have the intellectual or mind soul enclosed in the etheric body. And then we have an even more refined body through which we reach up into the supersensible world. Everything that we inwardly experience as our intimate secrets, as what is hidden today from consciousness and was experienced at the time of the old clairvoyance, as the creative forces in the evolutionary process emerging from the events of the dim and distant past, all this we ascribe to the sentient soul, which is enclosed in the most refined human body, in what, if you will excuse the technical term, we call the astral body. It is that part of man's being that forms a connection between the outer earthly environment and what lives as an inspirational element in his inner being. This latter is something that he cannot perceive through his outer senses, and neither can he perceive it when he looks into his own ether body. Rather does he perceive it when he becomes independent of himself, independent of his ether body, and is united with the forces of his origin. Thus we have the sentient soul in the astral body, the intellectual or mind soul in the etheric body, and the consciousness soul in the physical body. In the times of the old clairvoyance, these things were more or less instinctively familiar to people, for they had insight into themselves and perceived this threefold nature of the soul. It is not that they analyzed the soul intellectually, but their clairvoyant consciousness enabled them to perceive this threefold nature of the human soul, the sentient soul in the astral body, the intellectual or mind soul in the etheric body, and the consciousness soul in the physical body. As they looked back, they saw how the outer aspect of man's being, his outward form, which had long been hardened into animal forms, evolved out of what the threefold soul forces are the present-day result. They experienced that the sentient soul had its origin in supersensible creative powers that endowed man with the astral body, that body that he does not only possess between birth and death, as is the case with his etheric and physical bodies, but that he takes it with him when he passes through the portal of death, and which he already had before he was born. Thus the seers of olden times saw the sentient soul as united with the astral body, and they viewed the inspirational power working upon man from out of the spiritual world and creating his astral body as a creative power that fashions him out of the universal whole. 
they saw a second creative power in what was, has resulted in the intellectual or mind-soul and which has fashioned the etheric body in such a way that it transforms all outward substances, all outward matter, so that they permeate the physical human form in a human rather than in an animal way. The old clairvoyants viewed the creative spirit for the etheric body, whose fruits appear in our intellectual soul, as a superhuman cosmic power that exerts an influence upon man comparable to that of magnetism upon physical matter. They looked up into the spiritual worlds and saw a divine spiritual power which constructs, forges man's etheric body, so that this etheric body becomes the master builder that can transform outer matter, brings it into a state of confusion, pulverizes and grinds it to pieces, so that what otherwise exists as matter disintegrates within man, enabling him to acquire his human faculties. The ancient clairvoyants saw how this creative power transforms all material substance in an artistic way, so that it could become human matter. Then they beheld the third creative power, the consciousness soul, which actually makes man egotistical and represents the transformation of the physical body. And they ascribed those forces that hold sway in this physical body solely to the hereditary line, to what derives from father and mother, grandfather and great-grandfather, in short, to the result of human love, human powers of reproduction. They saw in this the third creative power, the power of love, working from generation to generation. The ancient seers looked up to three powers. They looked up to a creative being who ultimately calls forth our sentient soul by fashioning the astral body, which can be inspired by supersensible powers, because it is the body that man had before he became a physical being through conception, the body that he will have when he has crossed the threshold of death. The structure of forces, or rather, heavenly organism within man, which endures while the ether body and physical body pass away, was for the ancient clairvoyants at the same time, and they knew this from their direct experience, what has been able to bring culture of whatever kind into human life. Hence in the bringer of the astral body they saw that power that is the bearer of the divine world, which itself consists only of duration the power through which the eternal aspect of the world sings and weaves its sounds. And the ancient clairvoyants from whom I can clearly state, the figures in the Kalevala have arisen, have presented a living graphic expression of the creative power which we now find in the sentient soul, where the divine world indwells human nature as an inspirational force in Vainamoinen. Vainamoinen is the creator of that part of human nature which endures beyond birth and death and brings the heavenly into the earthly world. Let us now consider the se second figure in the Kalevala, Ilamarnen. If we go back to the old clairvoyant consciousness, we find that Ilmarnen 
creates everything that is a reflection of the etheric body in its living form, out of the forces of the earth and out of what belongs not to the sense-perceptible earth but to its deeper forces. We see him as the one who brings about the transformation, the pulverization of all matter. We see him as the forger of the human form. And in the Sampo, we see the human ether body that Ilmarinen has forged out of the supersensible world so that sense-perceptible matter can be pulverized and then carried forward from generation to generation in order that amidst the forces emanating from the third divine supersensible being, the human consciousness soul may continue to function in the physical human body from generation to generation through the powers of love. We see this third divinely supersensible power in Lemminkainen. Thus we can discern deep mysteries of mankind's origins in the forging of the Sampo, deep mysteries welling forth from the old clairvoyant consciousness and finding expression in the Kalevala. And with this we are gazing into the prehistory of mankind, a time of which we can say this was not a time when it would have been possible to analyze natural phenomena with our intellect. Everything was primitive. But in this primitive consciousness there lived a clear perception of what lies behind the sense-perceptible world. Now when these human bodies were forged, and specifically when man's etheric body, the Sampo, was forged, there was a period when he did not have the use of the forces, that had been prepared for him by the supersensible powers. Once the ether body had been forged, it first had to become inwardly attuned to its circumstances, just as a machine that we are making must not only be completed but must then be properly run in before it is put to use. In the course of human evolution, and this is apparent in evolution of any kind, there have always had to be intermediary stages between the creation of the respective members of man's being and their use. Thus man had forged his etheric body long ago in a distant past. Then there was an episode when this ether body was sent down to human nature. Only later did it shine forth as the intellectual soul. Man learned to use its powers as outer forces of nature, he brought forth the Sampo, which had hitherto remained hidden from his own nature. We see this mystery of human evolution portrayed in a wonderful way in the forging of the Sampo, in its hidden state, its period of inactivity, and then its rediscovery. We see how the Sampo is first implanted into human nature and then made available for creative cultural energies, which are initially manifested as the primitive cultural forces described in the second part of the Kalevala. Thus everything in this great national epic acquires a profound significance if we see it as containing clairvoyant descriptions of ancient events in human evolution, of the formative process of human nature out of its various members. I can assure you that I became familiar with the Kalevala long, long after these facts regarding the evolution of human nature had become clear to me. 
and it was a wonderful surprise for me to find in this epic what I was able to describe more or less theoretically in my book titled Theosophy, which was written at a time when I did not know a single line of the Kalevala. Thus we see how secrets are unveiled to humanity through Vainamoinen, the creator of supersensible inspirations, namely the story of the forging of the etheric body. But another mystery lies hidden here. I must emphasize that I do not know a word of Finnish, and I can only speak out of spiritual science. The only way that I would be able to make sense of the word Sampo is to make the following attempt to understand its background. We see how in animals the etheric body becomes the master builder for the most diverse forms, from the least perfect to the most perfect. In the human ether body, something was forged that combines all these animal forms into a single entity, though with the qualification that the ether body, that is the sampo, is forged throughout the earth in accordance with climatic and other circumstances, so that it has within its forces the particular folk characteristics and distinctive qualities that enable it to form one folk group in one way and another in a different way. For each people the Sampo is what constitutes the particular form of the ether body that breathes life into any particular ethnic group, so that the members of this ethnic group have a similar appearance with respect to what irradiates their living physical form. To the extent that a similar outward appearance in the human form is the work of the etheric body, the forces of the ether body reside in the Sampo. Hence, in the Sampo, we have the symbol of the cohesion of the Finnish people. We have what, in the depths of human nature, causes the Finnish people to have the particular form that they do. However, the same is true of every national epic. National epics can arise only where the culture is still encompassed within the forces of the Sampo, of the etheric body. To the extent that the culture is dependent on the forces of the Sampo, so does the people bear its particular stamp. Hence the etheric body is the bearer of the characteristics of the nation or etheric entity within the entire culture. When could the stream of the cultural development of a nation or ethnic group be interrupted. This could happen where something entered into the cultural development of humanity that is intended not for one person, racial group or people, but for the whole of mankind, something that emerges from such depths of human nature and is incorporated into cultural development that it applies to all people irrespective of nationality, race or whatever. This is what occurred when human beings were addressed by those powers which spoke not to one people, but to the whole of mankind, and which, albeit impersonally in the sense of popular culture, are hinted at so delicately and tenderly at the end of the Kalevala, when Christ is born of Mariata. When he is baptized, Vainamoinen leaves the country, for something has happened that brings the particular national element together with the universally human. Here at this point where one of the greatest 
most significant and succinct of national epics ends with the entirely impersonal, and if you will excuse the paradoxical word, non-Palestinian description of the Christ impulse, the Kalevala attains its fullest significance. We are in a quite particular way led to what can be experienced when the beneficial influence and blissful happiness of the Sampo are livingly experienced as continuing to work through all human evolution in conjunction with the Christian idea, with the Christian impulse. This is what is so infinitely tender about the end of the Kalevala. It is also what makes it so clear to us that the events preceding this conclusion in the Kalevala belong to the pre-Christian era. But just as it is true that everything of a universally human nature will continue to exist only if it preserves the individual element, so likewise will individual national cultures, which derive their essential nature from former clairvoyant states of the peoples concerned, live on on a universally human level. Similarly, the Christian element that shines through at the end of the Kalevala will find its perpetual place and maintain its particular legacy through the eternal influence of what is represented by the inspirations of Vainamoinen. For Vainamoinen stands for something that belongs to that part of man's being that transcends birth and death, something that accompanies him through every stage of his evolution. Thus epics such as the Kalevala represent something that is eternal and can be imbued with a Christian conception but which will begin to show itself as having an individual impulse, consistently demonstrating that just as white sunlight splits up into many colors, what is universally human will continue to live in the many folk cultures. And because this universally human quality in the national epics penetrates the individual element, shining into and addressing each person, the individualities of the peoples live so strongly in the essential nature of their national epics. Hence, the people of ancient times stand so full of life before our eyes, for in their clairvoyance they have beheld the essence of their own folk, as it is described to us in all national epics, whereas in the Kalevala we can have a wonderful opportunity of learning how humanity, in all its intimate details, is surrounded by the circumstances pertaining to Finnish culture and where this is portrayed in its innermost depths in such a way that it can be directly compared with what modern spiritual science is able to reveal concerning the mysteries of mankind. In this way, ladies and gentlemen, such national epics also by their very nature represent a living protest against any kind of materialism against anything derived from purely outward forces, states, or beings of a material nature. National epics, and especially the Kalevala, tell of how man has his origin in the soul-spiritual domain. Hence any renewal or re-enlivening of ancient national epics can contribute immeasurably to a truly spiritual culture. For just as spiritual science seeks in our time to bring about a renewal of human consciousness, bearing in mind that humanity has its source not in matter, but in the spirit, 
so does a precise study of an epic such as the Kalevala show us that the best that man has, and also the best that he is, originates from the realm of soul and spirit. In this sense, I found it interesting that one of the ruins concerning the Kantil directly protests against a materialistic interpretation of the events in the Kalevala. Readers aside, spelling of Kantil is K-A-N-T-E-L-E. End of readers aside. That harp-like instrument with which the ancient singers of olden times accompanied their singing is portrayed in a picture as if it were formed from materials taken from the physical world. However, the old runes protested against this. One might say that they protested from a spiritual scientific standpoint. Taking issue with the idea that the string instrument for Vainamoinen was constructed from products of nature which can be beheld by the senses. In truth, says the old rune, the instrument on which people played the melodies that came to them directly from the spiritual world has its origin in the world of soul and spirit. In this sense, the old rune should be interpreted in a spiritual scientific sense as a living protest against the ideas of which people with a materialistic interpretation are so capable as an indication that what man possesses as regards his essential nature and which is symbolically expressed through an instrument such as the one ascribed to Vainamoinen, that such an instrument originates in the spirit, as does man's being in its entirety. This old folk rune, in which I can discern the fundamental mood or nuance of what I have sought to present in this lecture regarding the essential nature of national epics, may serve as a motto for the whole standpoint of spiritual science. Quote, Words of falsehood do they utter, and their judgment deep in error. Those who think that Vainamoinen shaped for us the fair cantile, our string instrument so cherished, from the jawbones of a pike, and that he has spun the strings from the tail of Hiisi's steed. It was fashioned from dire hardship. Sorrow bound its parts together, and its strings by tears of longing and deep suffering were woven. Thus everything in existence is born not out of material substance, but out of the realm of soul and spirit. Not only this old folk rune, but also spiritual science, which seeks to play an active part in the living cultural development of our time. That is the end of this public lecture, which I'm going to designate as Lecture 001, and then we'll technically have Lecture 1 after this.